Hey y'all, it's Mary Payne Gilbert and welcome to Pain in the Pod. I want to thank all of you who joined Patreon. I have tons of new stuff over there. So if you're not quite sure what it is, it's just a place where I provide you with additional content on podcasts I've done, just like extra interviews, as well as content not related to the podcast at all, because I just like to talk to people. So thanks again. And if you want to join, you go over to patreon.com slash pain in the pod and I appreciate it. Now let's get to today's guest. So today's guest is a journalist and author, Josh Dean, of a fascinating podcast called The Clearing. Now you may or may not have heard of The Clearing, but it is amazing. So The Clearing is sort of a journey through April Bellaccio's life. So she's the daughter of what she found out later to be a serial killer. It goes through her journey of how she put it all together, how she started investigating and basically turned him in. So it it, it goes from way back to present day and it's amazing. And Josh did a great job. So I'm going to welcome Josh and thanks for coming. And I can't wait to talk to you about this. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right, Josh, tell me about your background as a journalist and then how you first met April. So I'm primarily, or I have been for a long time, a a magazine journalist. I've been freelance for, oh, 15 15 years now, but I mostly write magazine features and have now written two books. Um, But, you know, the magazine industry is uh, slowly dying on the vine as the internet (laughs) disrupted the advertising business as it does, has done for so many other businesses. So, uh, you know, we journalists who do this thing, storytelling and sort of long form narrative storytelling, which is like spending a lot of time on a project. uh, Podcasts are a pretty natural extension of that, like the natural, the, the sort of six to eight to 10 part narrative shows that, that are, um, complicated and expensive to produce, but but they they sort of fall in the wheelhouse of people who do what I what I do. So I naturally was I was looking around for a project, frankly, and and I wanted to do a podcast. But actually, I met April originally because I thought we were going to work together. I was kind of working on a magazine story about her dad. I'd heard about this like serial killer that I'd never heard of named Edward Wayne Edwards, and how there was this cop in Montana who was kind of obsessed with him and was trying to blame him for all these unsolved murder. So I sort of fell into the rabbit hole with that part of it. And then I realized, you know, if, if you listen to the show, we have an episode about that guy. I mean, that guy has sort of lost his way and, and, and he was not um, doing justice to the story. And in the course of that, I met April, who had not talked to anyone in the media since turning her dad in in 2009. And this would have been 2016 was when we first met. So I had kind of reached out to her and said, hey, I'm working on this thing. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to turn into, but I would love to talk to you about your experiences and, and what's happened since. And first she said no, and then she said, okay, maybe. And then finally she said yes, and I went and met with her in her lawyer's office. And we had about an hour and a half conversation, and then that just sort of opened the door. You know, Once I was in, we then the conversation was ongoing, and over time I realized it was way too much for a magazine story. Like maybe we would work on a book, but, but her dad recorded a lot of audio. So it was, it was almost the perfect situation for a podcast. Right. So April uh, turns her dad in, in 2009 and you didn't talk to her till 2016. And that's when you started to get the idea of you're going to do a long story, but you decided to turn it into a podcast, which you're right. It lends itself so well because you're talking, she's talking, and then you have all this audio. So did you, have you been working on this particular project since 2016? 
In a sense, yes, but not directly the podcast. So, you know, for about a year, it was like we're doing something and I'm not sure what we're doing. You know, maybe this will become a book. Maybe this will become a series of stories. I'm not sure. The podcast itself, we probably worked on for a little less than two years. I mean, I think Jonathan, the producer, came on um, in early 2018, maybe late 2017. So about a year and a half of like active production of, of reporting and recording and, and editing. And then, you know, our relationship goes back over three years. But I'd say the podcast was a little under two, 18 months to two years. I think that's what sometimes people don't realize about podcasts is that how long it takes to put a story together and put out, you know, eight to 10 to 12 episodes, even sometimes six. It could take a couple of years, you know, and that's why when podcasts like this one are so well done for me, I appreciate it so much because it wasn't like you just sat down and uh, jotted off an article and sent it in and then went on to the next thing. You did, you know, you never went on to the next thing. You were just working on this. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a perception out there that, that you know, that everyone has a podcast or podcasts are easy. I mean, in the one hand, the barriers to entry are pretty low if, if you're doing doing a talk show and that's great because like anyone can build an audience and have a show and there's not like you don't have to start a magazine or like you know break down some doors with tv but but this narrative type of show is really expensive and really time intensive and really and i think probably a lot of people have set out to do it and have either given up on it or have realized they're not they're not going to have the money so you have to have in my case i had a two two different production companies pineapple street and then ultimately gimlet came on as a second investor so, i mean you're talking about it wasn't my full-time job for a year and a half i still i'm working on a book and i still do magazine stories but the producer a senior producer at pineapple street he worked on this for a year and a half almost two years full-time and then we had some associate producers and you're talking about the clearing the music and music supervision and mixing and it's not like making a TV show, but it's it's quite an expensive and time consuming endeavor. And I think I didn't even realize how how much would go into it at first. I, I knew it would take a lot of time, and I knew it would be expensive. I don't think I realized quite how complicated and 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 resource intensive it would be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you talk yeah, you talk about the production and everything else, and the music and stuff alone is it's it's crazy how much time it takes. Um, so the whole thing really started. Um, with April looking into some murders, she was trying to figure out if her dad was responsible for many murders that occurred in every city they lived in. So their story is, is that growing up, they moved around a lot. And as she got older, she started sort of putting together these things that happened in these towns after, you know, these things happened, then they moved. So as an adult, she started putting it together. And was he ever on anybody's radar before 2009 besides that one guy that was like obsessed with him well i think that there were suspicions that he had been involved in um, what became episode six for us which is a story of this kid named danny boy glockner who was the i mean he's often referred to as adopted son that's not quite right he was just kind of this lost soul who after ed edwards had five kids after they were all grown and out of the house he took in this sort of like wayward 19 or 20 year old and, and seemed to be helping him out. And in fact, like basically set up this horrible scheme to, to murder him for life insurance money. And it's just the most sociopathic murder that I've ever encountered. And, and I think like 
the family always had suspicions that he was involved in that. I'm not sure that they thought he had actually committed the killing. Maybe they thought that there was some larger scam. I mean, they knew their all five kids knew their dad was a bad guy. I don't think anyone thought he was a murderer, but he had been on the FBI's 10 most wanted list before he was married for being an armed robber. He'd served time at Leavenworth. He, he was like a scammer and a con artist and, you know, they knew that he was doing bad things. I don't think anyone was like ready to make the leap to murder or, you know, if they did, they thought maybe he was involved with other violent people who were committed, you know, and maybe in the case of Danny Boyd committed that murder. But I don't think the kids were thinking, God, dad is a killer. But April says as she got older, you know, the Danny Boy case was a big red flag, but, but she started to look back on her, her childhood and think like, well, why were we moving all the time? Like, that's not normal. And I think... We all we don't really realize when you're in the middle of something, you normalize your life, and especially if you're a kid. It's not like you're going to think this is weird that I'm moving all the time because you don't really know what the other kids are doing. You just know right. that you pick up and move to a new town. Also, you trust your parents, and you you, re, you think that whatever we're doing, it must be the right thing because my parents told me that it was. Um, and this happens in abusive relationships. Like We just normalize terrible things all the time. And But as April got older, she just says that, the memory has started to haunt her more and more. And, and what she describes as the trigger is typically when her kids became teenagers, she has three kids of her own. Um, she said she started like looking at them and thinking, well, what if something happened to one of my kids and I never knew the answer. And, and that just sort of like, you know, unlocked the box of, I need to find out if my dad really is the monster that I suspect he might be. Uh, and it all kind of came crashing down on her. And, and it was like fortuitous circumstances, really, that led her to uncover the murder that opened all this up. Yeah, like I said, though, but before that, it wasn't as if he was being chased around the country as a serial killer. It was just, that's pretty amazing as a ch- as the daughter, you know, to eventually just turn him in. As You know, the point is like, because it wasn't like everybody knew he did it and they couldn't catch him. She just put it together herself as a, you know, as one of these five kids. That's right. That's what blows my mind. Yeah. Right. I mean, no, he was not being pursued at all. In fact, um, there was a, you know, one cop in Ohio who suspected that Edwards was always involved in that killing of Danny boy, but he could never prove it. And that case had kind of gone cold and gone away. And no, Edwards was like living, you know, he'd gotten really overweight and out of shape, and he was in poor health, living with his wife in a trailer outside of uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And but he was in no danger of being arrested until, yeah, April makes this call in in, in two thousand nine and sort of you know, starts the process that leads to his arrest ultimately. Yeah. Okay. I want to take a little break, and then when we come back, I want to talk to you about um, what you touched on about Ed Edwards recording everything. I'm gonna take a break, and we'll be right back with Josh Dean of the Clearing. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com slash smart for details. Okay, I'm back with Josh Dean of The Clearing. And I wanted to to touch on what you said earlier about the recording. Uh, we see similar things like this sometimes. Like there's the case of Josh Powell who murdered Susan Powell and later his children in Utah. And he and his super creepy dad recorded every single part of their lives on video, audio. They kept journals. They kept little um, 
trinkets hidden in their house. Like, and I'm wondering the same in the case of Ed Edwards, is this just like a case of like classic narcissism, you know, where you think that everything you're doing is so important, it has to just be recorded, but in the end, it's sort of your downfall. Yeah, I think so. I, I think narcissism is probably the biggest factor. You know, he definitely, he definitely fancied himself the smartest person in any situation. And even though he was not, you know, he didn't go to college and he had been a criminal by the time he was a teenager, he was always described as being very clever and very charming. I mean, you hear this said about serial killers all the time. It's a specific kind of personality. They tend to be narcissists. They tend to be um, charming. And, and I mean, that's how they get away with it in not every circumstance, but often. And, and Edwards, you know, he was he sort of reveled in committing all, all sorts of crimes. And I think he loved pulling a fast one on people. He sort of he, he had this thing where he would move to a town and immediately befriend law enforcement. And I think partly so that he would know what was going on. But also, I think it was a game to him that like, hey, I, I'm going to be friends with cops while I'm doing terrible things. And recording yourself yeah i mean maybe you think that someone you, you know you're doing it for posterity or you're doing it because everyone cares about every moment of your life i also think in his case there was maybe a little paranoia at play he would like record phone calls and you know i wanted to make sure that he had a record of everything that had happened just in case uh, but that yes you're right i mean it's it, probably more bad than it's good because when you do get caught then then you've you've left some kind of evidence trail was that um danny boy that he recorded that call with where he had that whole it was right where he had that whole fake thing where he's like why yep. did why did you break in the house remember yep. did, how did you come in through the window and he was like trying to coach him with all these things so he could have evidence later that he didn't kill him right yeah absolutely yeah that that case, I mean, every murder is terrible and and, and, and you know so so painful to, to reconcile with in retrospect and trying to figure out why someone did something. That one is just like it's just devastating because it seems like Edwards basically had, took this kid in pretending to be a father figure because he didn't have anybody else and helps him get into the military and it's all a part of a plot to kill him for the life insurance money. And that call you yeah you're describing is this really. I mean, it's it's an incredible. It's so hard to believe that it's real and that we have the recording. It was him basically coaching this person that he's going to kill through a a break in, which is part of his cover up for the murder. And it's just like, you, like who, who? How could a person be this evil? And we listened to that tape with April. And I think I think this is in the show. You know, she, that we were just kind of all stunned, and she said something like, "You know, that's what evil sounds like." Right. And then we did hear the audio, too. I don't think it was. Well, was it Edwards recorded it or the police recorded it when they went to his trailer to get his DNA initially? That was the cops recorded that one. That was so crazy because you can hear how they come in and they're trying to be nice to him and they're trying to say, hey, look, you know, we have to just sort of eliminate you. And he was like, well, and he's being all sweetie sweet and his nice wife is all nice and everything. And then all of a sudden when he realizes like, we are going to take your DNA, we do have a warrant. Like, this is not really a question. We're doing it. Then the whole thing sort of turned where he's like, now, wait a minute, you know, um, it, because at that point he feels like, okay, well, actually I might get caught for some of this stuff. Right. I'm sure he thought at that point, you know, he's just scot free and he's going to, you know, just get old and, and, and die in, in Louisville and that, yeah, this like these cops show up one day and there's a great moment in that, that scene, 
which is just an unbelievable scene. And we let that play out really long because the audio was just, it's just such an incredible moment. It's sort of like the kind of human drama that you see on television, but in, yeah. in, real, it's, in real life, it's somehow even more dramatic. But Kay, his, his, his wife, you know, during that moment when he's sort of saying, you know, wait, are you actually going to do that? Is some, says something like, if you don't have, anything, don't have anything to worry about, then why wouldn't you just give it to him? And you can just hear in her voice that, on some level, she she must have known that she's been stuck with this monster and she has no way out and that like these cops showing up is kind of giving her the escape hatch that she probably had wanted for a long time. Well, that was going to be my next question was about the mom. So, so they're married. They have these five kids. She's been with him for a very long time. And now they've ended up sort of in this trailer in Kentucky and she's sort of taking care of him because he's, you know, not doing well health wise. I was so shocked that she was still with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of my arrangements or, or agreements with April was to leave the rest of her family alone. She, they, they chose not to participate and they didn't want to talk to us. And I respected that. And, and, you know, I think Kay in particular, Kay was his wife, her mom, um, just didn't want to be part of it. I think they were sort of feeling like, this uh, this chapter was closed because Edwards passed away in jail in 2011. So he's arrested in 2009 and then ultimately gets a death penalty and is, he passes away on death row in Ohio. But it's okay. April's mom, people ask me all the time, like, why did she stay with him? Or did she know? I, I don't know what she knew. I, I think she's often described to me as being like, just, you know, the, the shell of a person like the battered wife who's just been living with this terrible monster who I think you know, maybe she didn't know that he was murder had murdered anyone, but clearly knew he was a terrible person. I mean, he was abusive and he was a control freak. And April says that she, you know, he wasn't, wouldn't let her touch the finances. She was barely allowed to drive. Like, you know, it's kind of the, it's not quite Stockholm syndrome because I don't think she was necessarily on his side. I just think it's the situation of someone who's been stuck for a really long time and just doesn't know how to get out of it. Is, is Kay still alive? She is. Yes. Uh, I've never, I've never spoken to her. Wow. Well, I think about, you know, in this story, I think about her and I think about like, wow, I mean, she must've been married to him 30, 40 years, you know, and all that moving and five kids and it's a lot. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, April says, you know, her mom was probably so caught up in child rearing for a long time and probably also realizing that she was married to a bad person, but that she, she didn't work. He was providing the money, however he was providing the money, and I think he was he was gone a lot and probably was just holding it together. And then, yeah, I, that you know, once you've survived in that kind of situation for for so long, I don't know, maybe she, you 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 find ways to to get through it. I imagine, but again, I haven't spoken to her, so I don't know a lot about her psychology. Okay, so Ed Edwards, we talked about Danny Boy. He was he was convicted of killing five people, so he killed Danny Boy who was, you know, like he said, was sort of like his son, but really was just sort of a kid they took in. And then he killed the two teenagers who in the podcast you and April talked to towards the end. And there's that nice scene at the end of the podcast where, you know, it's, it's so interesting that April can be there talking to someone like my dad killed your child. I mean, it's so, it's so hard to sort of wrap your brain around. Um, but that was sort of, her, that's sort of what the podcast is about is April's journey to, not to make amends for her father because she can't say she's sorry for what he did. I mean, she didn't do it, but it's like a cleansing for her almost like to, to go around. Like, I just want to tell you from my family to your family, I'm sorry. Right. 
you know, and then, but okay. So he killed those two teenagers and he killed Danny boy. Now who are the other two people that he killed that we, that we know of? So the original case that she, April turned him in for was a double murder in Wisconsin in 1980 of two teenagers, um, boyfriend, girlfriend who had left a, a wedding and were never, well, disappeared and then were later found dead. Um, and then the second double murder was very similar circumstances in Ohio. It was a couple that had been um, parked on a lover's lane in a park, uh, found dead near the car. Um, so those are the so it's two double murders plus the murder of, of Danny Boy. Now we suspect him in a number of other cases, including two other double murders of teens um, parked in cars, one in Great Falls, Montana, one in Portland. Um, and there are some other cases around the country. And then there's then there are a lot of like, you know, sort of gossamer threads where April suspects something and we can't really find any concrete evidence of even a crime, but she has like just a bad feeling about a place. Mm-hmm. But certain, certainly there were a few cases we looked into. And I said very early in the show, you know, we're not going to set out to solve a murder here. I would love to do that because it would, you know, I feel like April has this unquenching, you know, this unquenchable need to help more, which is like solving cases. And, it's a it's a it's a cross. I wish she didn't bear because I just think it's an impossible situation. You, you can't feel responsible. You don't choose your parents, and and really, she's done enough. I, and but I don't know that she'll ever rest. I think she feels like if there's other cases and she can help, she wants to help. Absolutely. And the detective that you talked about earlier that sort of got obsessed with it, he is fully convinced that Ed Edwards was the Zodiac killer. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that cop. He's a retired cop in Montana who, when April didn't talk, so she turned her dad in in 2009, and then she didn't speak to anyone until me in 2016, and then our show didn't actually arrive until this year. So into that vacuum, this guy kind of arrived, and he started trying to blame Edwards for basically every famous unsolved murder, you know, and it's almost not an exaggeration. Things like the Black Dahlia and John Bonet Ramsey, and wow, it just sounds outlandish. Now the Zodiac case is the only one I was willing to entertain as at least plausible just because Zodiac also killed, um, you know, young lovers parked in cars. Um, right. It's, it sounds similar. Yeah. And there are a few weird coincidences like that. The one of the survivors of the Zodiac killings remembered the killer saying something about serving time in Deer Lodge prison in Montana. Edwards did serve time in Deer Lodge prison in Montana before back in the fifties. So it's 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 possible, but like the thing is, we can't put him in California definitively on any of those dates, and 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 if you can't do that, then I can't. I'm not willing to say that he's even a likely suspect. I am willing to say it's not implausible. Whereas I'm sure he did not kill John Bonet Ramsey. <laughs> right. Well, it, yeah, and it seems it seems like too once he's caught a lot. Somebody like Ted Bundy, for example, once they're caught, really like the now they're getting the attention for you know being a prolific serial killer and you see Edwards did a lot of the same thing where once he felt like he had the power. So he's constantly trying to negotiate. Like, I'm not going to tell you anything unless you move me where I want to be moved. And I find that as kind of a similar thread as well, but it's sort of like he did go to his grave with a lot of secrets. Yeah. April's convinced that, you know, that he was, so he died in his sleep in prison. 
you know, without ever having given really any interviews or, or, or confessing to much more than what he needed to get himself the death penalty. I mean, what's, what's interesting about the way that he confessed to those five murders is that there was like a very specific logic to it. Once what he wanted was to come back to Ohio. So he's arrested in Wisconsin. He's lives in Louisville, but he's arrested on a case in Wisconsin. So which means he's extradited to Wisconsin and he's in jail waiting trial. He hated Wisconsin. He's from Ohio. He wants to go back to Ohio. So he, he starts like confessing to another case thinking that's going to get him to Ohio, but he also wants the death penalty. And I think here is where the narcissism and the grandstanding and the, you know, he wants to, he's caught, he's never getting out of jail. And I think he wants to make a big scene out of it. So he, he's like looking for the case that will get him the death penalty. And that's finally the Danny boy case, but that's where he sort of stopped. And he teased the idea that he might confess to other things, but he never does. And then he dies in his sleep. So I think this is not helping April's feeling that like there's more that she needs to know. And because he died, we'll never know definitively. And so she's left to kind of like this albatross of like, I will, I need to figure out what else he did. And uh, like I said, a few minutes ago, it's, it's a totally unfair cross to bear for her. Like she's, I mean, I keep trying to tell her you've done enough. Like you, you're the one, you're the only reason he got caught, you know, a number of families now know the answers to questions that haunted them for decades because of you. You don't have to go out and solve every murder, but I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not sure she hears it. I'm not sure she can absorb it. Well, I I don't think anybody can imagine what it would be like to be in that position or, or what you would think other than her siblings. Now, what do her siblings make of all this? Again, I wasn't allowed to talk to them. I've spoken to one of the, there's other four of them. I've spoken to one of them. They're all, you know, I think they were supportive at the time, but also don't want this to, they don't, I don't know what they feel. You know, I haven't spoken to them, so I can't, I can't really say why they're choosing not to talk. I just know that they are. I think that probably this has been difficult for everyone and we all, would process that information differently. And I can certainly understand someone who would just be like, you know what? He was arrested. He died. I'm done with it. I don't want to think about it anymore. You know, like I, in, in your private time, who knows what you think about it, but I, I can certainly understand wanting to move on. And I imagine that's probably what it's about. It has definitely caused some friction in the family. I think that, that, that April has continued to pursue this, but, um, you know, I think her, her motives are good. She wants to help. And, and, Oh Yeah. And, you know, I don't feel for all of them. I don't, I'm not willing to, I don't know, cast any aspersions or make any assumptions about why someone would choose to, to participate or not participate. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that April trusted me to help tell her story. And I was very happy to, to help to the extent that I was able to, but I just kept telling her, you know, I'm not sure we're going to ever do the thing that you hope that you want to do, which is like solve some more murders. And, and like you mentioned that, that family in Wisconsin. So when the show, the show, the last episode ends with our visit to that family, that was the the father of the, one of the two teens from the original murder that she discovered. And I think she wants that over and over again, which is like to help these people who are haunted by some unsolved murder. Cause it's a particular kind of torture. I think when your kid gets murdered, terrible thing, but like when you don't know what happened to your kid, I think it just adds a layer of pain that, that only people who have been through that can understand. Right. And she can understand it, but you know, from the other side, um, yeah, it was very, um, it was very like, uh, touching, but also just like devastating, you know, uh, on all sides. 
It was, yeah. Being being there in that house was it was a it was a surreal day. It was like a really emotional day. It was it it, it didn't occur. You know, it's the last episode of the show. It didn't occur at the end of our reporting, but I sort of knew after it happened that that would be how the show, unless we were solving a murder, that's how the show would end. Cause I just felt like this, this is the, this is the good that has been done is that there's this strange friendship that's developed between April and the father of the son that her dad killed. And you know, I heard a couple different people say to her, like, you know, we, we feel bad for you too. She always res- resists this and pushes it, pushes back on it, which is the, like, you're a victim too. We feel bad for you. And she's like, no, no, I'm not, you know, but, but they, but people, including parents of kids who are killed by her dad, you know, will say back to her. Yes, you are. Like you didn't decide that your dad, like you, you, you basically lost a father and not only that, but you're stuck living with the, the knowledge that, he was this terrible monster and that's a different kind of, of victim, but it doesn't mean that you're not a victim. Absolutely. Um, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about uh, what's in the future for April and for you as well. Support for this podcast comes from invent together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, we're back with Josh Dean of The Clearing. And so um, to wrap up with Ed Edwards, so he died in prison in 2011. So he was only in prison for these five murders for two years before he died. Correct. Yeah, so he was he was pretty quickly, because he was confessing, it took him about a year to get out of Wisconsin back to Ohio. And then when he confessed to the second double murder, there was a complication with that. That fell during a period when the death penalty was federally illegal and the Supreme Court struck it down in the 70s. So he basically had to confess to yet another murder. That was the Danny Boy case. Finally got on the death penalty. And then it was a pretty quick process. Basically, and I, you know, I talked to a defense attorney who had worked with him who was very uncomfortable. He said this was almost unprecedented to be a defense attorney whose client is actively seeking the death penalty. He said, you know, my job is to keep them from getting killed. And here I am having to stand up there and help him get the death penalty. But that's what Edwards wanted. And these three judge panels formed special circumstances again to say, are you sure this is what you want? Are you really not contesting this? And Edwards said, yes. And then he was just sitting on death row waiting. And I think it was going to be a fairly expeditious process to to the execution i think within a year he would have been executed and then he just died in his sleep he wanted the death penalty because generally people feel that this is just my perception of it that if you're on death row you're treated better you have better living quarters you're treated better death row was like a better place to be but of course it's going to end in (laughs) your death so what's the point I think probably that's part of it. I also think that for him being a, a narcissist and a control freak, he felt like 
he knew he was he was caught. He was there was no situation in which he's getting out of jail. So I think in, he's like, I'm already old and I'm already out of shape, and I I like uh, the only thing I can control now is how it ends. So why don't I make a big spectacle out of it? So I think that was a big part of it. Was like, let let me do this on my terms, mm. and I'm gonna like manipulate the system and law enforcement the way that I've been doing my whole life. And I'm going to tell them how it ends instead of them telling me how it ends. And like, I don't, I don't think he would have gotten the death penalty if it had just been left to the prosecutors. I think he probably would have gotten life in prison in Wisconsin and would have died up there. But I think this is my interpretation is that he thought, you know what, it's going to end on my terms and I'm going to make you guys jump through a bunch of hoops and create a big media circus. And then you're going to execute me because I'm old and out of, out of shape and I don't have many years left anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But would you think that with the police now having his full DNA profile, uh, will that you hear all these like let's run through the system and now we found he killed these 25 more people. I mean, is that a possibility uh, that more people will be found just because of the DNA alone? I mean, it's a possibility. We can we can hope, but it's, I think probably the years in which he would have been, you know, most active, like sixties, seventies, like the care of DNA back then was was not. We didn't really understand. You know, for one thing, they didn't understand DNA back then, so the samples were probably not very well kept and handled. And I, I think it's more a lucky situation where some cop accidentally happened to store the evidence in a way in which the DNA is preserved. So it's, it's, it's possible for sure, but I mean, it hasn't proven helpful in, in a couple of cases we were looking at with like, with like uh, great falls or Portland. And, and apparently in the Zodiac case, there is DNA and we're going to find out who knows when this year, or next year, um, Vallejo, California cops claim to have DNA that they think is the Zodiac killers. I don't know why it's taking so long for those results to come out, but um, it's certainly possible, you know, and I think now that we have his DNA, obviously any time in the future when, when some evidence is presented for a case that he could have been involved in, there will be a a sample to run it against. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, well, I mean, that would be great. At least, you know, the families of these victims could have some closure if there's more to pop up and then that will just give April a little more peace. But it sounds like, it sounds like she's sort of, uh, uh, you know, on a hamster wheel, just sort of running, 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 but there might not be an end, you know, and that's what's frustrating for her, I imagine, and and sad. Yeah, I think so, because I feel like she deserves to have peace. She's done enough. I mean, I, I definitely understand it. You know, I I was like spent three years talking to her about all these things, and I, I also would love to be able to help in some way. And it's not like a personal connection for me, but, you know, you start to think like, if there's some way I can help, I I would like to, but I also, there's a very real possibility that nothing else will ever come of this. And I think I would like her to be able to find peace with that and to, you know, at some point feel like her work, at least on this thing has been done. And right now it doesn't seem like that's possible, but you know, over time, Maybe I don't. The show probably helps. Maybe things will come out of it. I, April's going to write a book. I know. I think she feels like she has more of her story that she'd like to tell. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you um, if April was going to write a book, or if you were going to write a book as you initially thought. Uh, she is. Yeah, we we do not have plans to work on a book together. Um, I sort of feel like my contribution to the story has been done. She has a. Um, I think 
would like to tell more of her story from a memoir perspective, a little bit more of, you know, we were kind of focused in the way that we pursued her story as it related to the things her dad may have done. Um, I think she would like to, to talk about, you know, a lot of people were inspired by her story or feel like moved by her. And I keep telling her she probably could have a future as a, as a public speaker speaker talking about overcoming difficult circumstances. And I think probably in her book, she'll talk a lot about that kind of stuff, how she got through it and, and you know, how it impacted her life in other ways. And, and she always, you know, she'll, she's very frank about saying she has a lot of her dad in her, the good, the good and the bad. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, talking about how just because you have bad qualities doesn't necessarily need the mean that you need to be a bad person. And, her dad had a very difficult childhood. He was a, basically an orphan who grew up in reform schools and was sexually abused and physically abused. And, and I, you know, I, when I say to her, you, you can understand on some level how a person becomes bad. And she always says to me, well, you know, yes, that's true. You can't choose how you grew up. And if terrible things happen to you as a kid, then it definitely affects your personality, but you, you choose what to do with that. Then like he didn't have to become a killer. He didn't have to become, you know, he, right. And I think she's like, there are bad parts of me, but I'm not out there killing people. You know, And I'm not. So I yes. think she would like that to be the lesson of one of the lessons is like, you're not a product of, well, yes, you're a product of your circumstances. You can't change how you grew up, but you can, you can, you can change how that, um, Form, forms you and, and the way you go forward. Right. Well, she's definitely, you know, definitely a great example of that. So what is next for you as far as, are we going to get another three year long project <laughs> <laughs> podcast out of you? Or? I will definitely, there will be more podcasts. I don't, I'm still circling around a couple different things. I think what I tend to say is I think I'm done with murder for a while. I think that I have a very conflicted relationship with true crime and I've, I, you know, I've done crime stories. I feel like there has to be a reason to tell the story. This, there's a very clear reason in this case for me to be involved. Like April wanted to do it. She had a real goal in mind. So we weren't just like, um, I, I was wary all along of like, I don't want to glorify your dad They're You know, sadly serial killers have fans and I don't want to like be contributing to the legend of right. Ed Edwards. I, what I want to do is be like bursting the bubble. If anything, I want to reveal him for being a terrible person who no one would want to admire. Um, so, and also just meeting families of victims. You just, you realize like, you know, we sort of talk about murders in the abstract and killers of, kill all these people and then you meet one family of one victim and you realize like the the impact of that tragedy is just enormous and i it was hard it was hard and i don't know that i'm ready to like look stare that in the face again anytime soon um which isn't to say i never will again because i think journalism can play a role i mean we saw this within the dark great yes. example great example of a podcast that is about crimes in the second season is about murders but had a real point because it seemed like the person who was convicted of those murders was wrongly convicted and sure enough the case ends up in the supreme court in part thanks to that show and i think that is a really inspiring thing to see how journalists you know well, there's all this crap in the news about fake news and, and journalists lying and our, you know, our government accusing us of being bad people. I mean, in most cases, journalists are good people who are trying to, to like truth tell. Yes, absolutely. 
in the dark was a great example of that. So, which is not to say that every podcast needs to be out for the greater good. I think some things can be purely for entertainment or at least like, it can't be about like getting someone off death row or, or going to the Supreme court or you'll never, you'll, you, you know, those cases are few and far between. Yeah. It's not a pressure we should all bear, but I, I think my next story will not involve killers. Um, and I'm still writing, I'm working on a book. I'm still writing magazine stuff. I, I'm, I like all of it. I definitely want to do another podcast. I would say stay tuned. Uh, as soon as I know what it is, I, I'll, I'll <laughs> let everyone know. <laughs> what is the, uh, what's the book about that you're working on? So the last book that I wrote was about the CIA. It was about a big CIA operation during the Cold War to steal a submarine from the Russians wow. using an incredible cover story of Howard Hughes mining the ocean. It's, it's just an unbelievable, stranger-than-fiction, true-life story about the CIA. And, and this is kind of an outgrowth of that. It's about a, um, a guy named Kelly Johnson who, who ran a secret airplane manufacturing operation in California, basically making airplanes for the CIA during the cold war in secret. Wow. So, so I'm doing, it's my, it's my second kind of intelligence cold war story, which is unusual for me. Cause my first book was about dogs and I did a show about serial killers and I, I, I tend to be all over the place. It's <laughs> like, I describe my focus as eccentric. <laughs> I just sort of do whatever <laughs> the whims lead me. But in this case, it's it's kind of a, a natural follow up to the last book in that it's sort of about the CIA and the Cold War. But it's much more about airplanes and aerospace and, and like great American ingenuity and innovation. So we've got planes, we've got dogs, we've got the CIA, and we've got a serial killer. <laughs> yep. So I'm a, I'm a little hard to pin down. When you ask me what, like, what my specialties are, I say kind of whatever interests me. So on that note, if you're listening to podcasts, what podcast are you listening to? Because it sounds like you've got a very, very eclectic taste. Well, in the course of this show, I was listening to a lot of other narrative shows that I thought you know, succeeded in being both compelling and also important. And that's, I mean, those, those seem like words, like I'm puffing myself up a lot. Like I, I, you know, I just wanted the show to matter in a way. Yes. So I listened to all three seasons of the serial. I liked S 10 a lot. I think Bear Brook is a great show. I think, um, in the dark, obviously, like I mentioned before, like hugely impactful, but, um, you know, I listen to the daily every day, probably like millions of other Americans. Um, yes, I really like Conan O'Brien's new show because sometimes I just need to laugh when I'm like listening to shows about murder. What what is is this podcast? Uh, Conan O'Brien is not your friend, or Conan O'Brien yeah, is your friend? Uh, is your something? Yeah, I, I can't remember the exact title. It's one of those, but yeah, it's basically Conan interviewing interesting people, mostly other comedians, and like the loose con pretense is like trying to figure out if they should be his friend or not. But usually it's just like an hour long conversation with some interesting person and, and, and it's Conan. He seems very in his element on like comedians, not surprisingly are great at podcasting because it's, there's like a microphone and no pressure so they can just kind of be their true selves. I heard Conan interview uh, Karen and Georgia for my favorite murder um, or they interviewed him rather when his first pod, when his podcast first came out. And that was fascinating because he's a huge true crime follower. And he was telling them about some very famous cases in New York where he just went and sat in the courtroom um, just because he was interested in it. And they were like, hold on, you're like on TV, but you're zipping over to the courthouse to sit in the back to listen. He was like, yeah, just out of interest. 
Yep. Yeah. He's, he's very interested in, in, in true crime and serial killers. And he's just a, and he's, he's like a really omnivorous historian. He's really into history and obscure history. He's a fascinating guy. So yeah, I would, I, I recommend if you're looking for just a fun, uh, you'll laugh a lot, but also he's just, he's just a good interviewer. I think probably that's how he ended up on TV interviewing people. But the podcast, as you know, the podcast is a great form for interviewing people. I think you take the camera away. It takes a little bit of the pressure off. You have a little bit more luxury of time and you can really like dig into something with somebody where they're not feeling stressed out about, you know, TV, there's two problems, cameras and time. There's always a ticking clock. Like, you have 30 seconds left. You have 20 seconds left. So I don't think anyone's ever totally relaxed. Also, there's a huge camera and a bunch of spotlights in your face. So, right. you know, the podcast is like an intimate, I keep hearing people say this when I meet them, they're like, it's so weird to hear your voice in person. You know, when you're like, it's intimate in a way because we're all wearing these headphones and the, and the voice is coming right into your ear. So it feels like, like someone's just walking and talking next to you, I think. And we develop these connections to podcast hosts that we don't to TV hosts or, or magazine writers or authors where you can't even hear that. You don't even know what that person sounds like, let alone, you know, what their voice would be like conversationally. Yeah, absolutely. And I talk to a lot of podcasters and it is sometimes so jarring to me when I, if I see them on my screen, if we're, if we're doing it that way, or if I'm just hearing them through my ears to hear them talking to me when I have generally what I've listened to the podcast the whole way through. And then before I know I'm going to interview someone, I listen to it again. So I've really, um, heard them, you know, for anywhere between you know eight to 16 hours. And then to talk to them, it's the same way for me. I'm like, whoa, you know, like, wow, how, how interesting that this is your voice coming out of your face, you know? Yeah, um, right. So, all right, tell everybody where they can find out more about you and also the clearing and what you're doing next and also April as well. Um, so April, well, April does not have a website as far as I know, but she does have a, she does have a Twitter account. Um, and I think she, you can also follow her on Facebook. It's April, she's April Balascio, which is B-A-L-A-S-C-I. Oh, oh Balascio, yeah. yeah. Balascio. So and there are, there's, I think, believe, I believe there's no one else with that name on Facebook. So, and it's a public account. So, you know, I think she periodically posts there. Yeah, I know she's working on a book. Um, I mean, she and I are in regular contact. We're actually taping the Tamron Hall show this afternoon. So, oh, wow. Okay, you'll cool. See, you'll see us on TV together soon. Um, I um, I do have a website. I'm, it's joshdean.com. I wish I could say I updated it more often than I do, but like big projects certainly get mentioned on there. So when I'm working on another podcast, I'll put it up there. Um, but I'm also on all of the social media. I'm at, at joshdean66 which is just a randomly assigned number because I, when I, when I, I think when I first signed up for Gmail 15 years ago, I was like, Oh, I bet I could just have Josh Dean at Gmail. And it's like, no, how about Josh Dean 66? It's like, Oh man, there's already 65 of me on Gmail. <laughs> well, I'm Mary Payne too on all my stuff because when I first went to sign up for, you know, Cox.net or whatever we had dial up at our house, I couldn't be Mary Payne. I had to be Mary Payne too. I was like, really? <laughs> Really? There's somebody else out there? Yep, so it's the same thing. There's always someone else out there. Although I think in April's case, there is not. I think April Blasio is an unusual enough name that you can find her. And uh, I don't feel like I'm giving anything. I think she would be happy to have people checking out her Facebook page. I know she gets a lot of messages that way. So, and to find out about the clearing, I know I went uh, and I just Googled it and it came up and I believe it was a Gimlet Media site that gave me all the information about the clearing. That's correct. Yeah, I I'm not exactly sure if it's gimlin.com backslash the clearing, but yeah, if you search the clearing, I mean, it, it, we have until very recently, and we it was in the iTunes 
top five or top 10 for the last three months. It, it's oh, just, yeah. if it's not still in the top 10, it's just outside. So I usually tell people to, if you click on the Apple charts, you'll see us there. Um, Absolutely. But, you will. It's been hugely successful. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy that it continues to, to, you know, we haven't had a new episode now in four weeks and it's, it's endured, which I'm, I mean, I'm very proud of it. I think April is too. And, and Pineapple Street and Gimlet, everyone who showed faith in us and spent real money on it. It's great that the story is getting out there. So yeah, you'll find it very easily if you do a search. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you chatting with me. And I'm going to go and um, link up with April on her Facebook page too, because I find her to be such a compelling character. And I will uh, check out you guys on TV later today as well. Well, I'm not sure we're taping live. I think we're live to tape. So, uh, but I bet she'll post it when it it may not be on until next week. So we're Yeah, it's Tamron Hall. Yeah. Yeah, Tamron Hall's new talk show. That's cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. And I would highly recommend listening to The Clearing. It's it's a fascinating human story, uh, just about a daughter and her dad. And uh, it, it really moved me a lot. It was really great. You guys did a great job on it. And um, I want to thank everybody for listening. And remember, if you're looking for me, you can find me on all social media at Pain in the Pod. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Mary Payne.